The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. Have you ever felt like life makes no sense? (laughs) Peggy, I'm so glad that you're a part of our church family. You make preaching such a delight. Have you ever felt like, yes, have you ever felt like life lacks coherence or any kind of discernible order or pattern? Have you ever felt like things are meaningless? Have you ever felt like time is fleeting at an impossible rate and your life and your dreams and your opportunities are evaporating before your very eyes? That you are speeding towards your expiration date like a bullet from a gun. But somehow for a life that's moving so fast, it seems to expire so painfully, monotonously, mind-numbingly, boringly slow. We looked at this our first Sunday, but have you ever felt like, uh, our first Sunday in Ecclesiastes, but have you ever felt like this kid? I have this picture on the screen. This was, uh, I shared this, the the first Sunday that we studied uh, Ecclesiastes chapter one. This is a child who was offering their existential reflections on online school, and this is what they said. Boring online school. Today is just another day and a long line of days staring at a dumb screen. Just boring, boring. Online school. That's the only thing that did happen. It's the only thing that is happening. That's the only thing that will happen. All is vapor, says the preacher. Do you ever feel like the student, boring online school? It's the only thing that will happen. It's the only thing that did happen. Do you ever feel like you're just never on top of anything? Do you feel like you live at a ridiculous pace and everything just sort of evades your reach? I've heard it said that being an adult is just telling yourself things will slow down next week, thinking that every week until you die. Is life ever just confounding? Like things don't make sense. Well, thankfully, God in his grace and by his Holy Spirit gives us Ecclesiastes. And what we've been given in this study through Ecclesiastes is language and a relatable experience from the preacher who kind of sees these things and has, has those same experiences and, and helps us speak to that. He refers to everything as hevel. Hevel is the word that's kind of the, the through line all throughout the book, that everything is vapor. Hevel is a Hebrew word that can be translated to mean something like mist or vapor. He says everything is vapor. The preacher's opening words in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, probably better translated as vapor of vapors, says the preacher. All is vapor. As we study the book, the preacher's given us language to these experience, and he tells us that everything is hevel. And so Ecclesiastes is about killing illusions, uh, illusions of our grand importance, illusions of infinite time, illusions of some future date where everything is under control. Ecclesiastes is about challenging our ambition. We are finite. We are limited. We can be at one place and at one time. And we will die after living lives where we weren't all that we wanted to be. It's about the seemingly chaotic and inscrutable nature of life. Things come fast and unexpectedly, and there's not always obviously good reasons for why things shake out the way that they do. The preacher describes life under the sun as hevel, a kind of vaporous or mist-like existence. But there's a kind of freedom that that grants us. And a permission, actually, to rejoice. We'll see here in a moment. If this is your first week with us, we're glad that you were here. But I've got to say, I'm very sad that you have missed our study through Ecclesiastes. Uh, it is a fantastic, fantastic, extremely poignant book. And I would encourage you to do a deep dive yourself reading the book. Now, it hit me last week while Aaron 
listening to Aaron preach and explain chapter 11. Chapter 11 and chapter 12, as we close out our study this week, it hit me that there's three final words that the preacher has for us. And that's what we're going to look at today. The preacher's three final words for us. And then there's an afterword, a kind of editorial conclusion in chapter 12, verses 9 through 14, that encourages us to take heart, to own the message of Ecclesiastes. This is going to be great. I'm so excited. Let's get started. Look at chapter 11, verse 9. We're going to back up just a little bit. Chapter 11, verse 9. Rejoice, O young man in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Now, we're going to see these kind of three ideas that kind of run alongside one another. Two ideas in chapter 11 and one at the beginning of chapter 12. There's some kind of admonition, and it's an admonition in light of the fact that you're young. He's, he's speaking and seems to have a kind of a particular eye towards youthfulness. And here in chapter 11, verse 9, he says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Now, this is a little bit of a surprising twist, that this is the place that the preacher would go. After the kind of boring online school reflection, you know, in chapter one, he gives us about kind of the monotony of life, about the acknowledgement that everything's hevel. Again and again, he says, rejoice. Rejoice. He's told us to set a table in the mist. Several times throughout the book, and we're going to look at a few of them. Ecclesiastes 2.24, this is what he says. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw as from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? There's nothing better, he says, in light of the, the heaviness of everything, than to eat, drink, and find enjoyment in your toil. Chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to, than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Chapter 3, 22. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Chapter 6, verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, i.e. eating, drinking, taking pleasure in toil, and he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Chapter 8, verse 15. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Then chapter 9, verses 7 through 9. The strongest statement, kind of in this vein. Go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Dress for a feast and a celebration, he says. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vaporous life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Ecclesiastes is low-key, incredibly, incredibly, incredibly encouraging. Uh, I'm, I'm going to pick on Braden. He, he sent me a video this week, a few days ago. 
It's, uh, it's one of those like, kind of Christian meme accounts, you know, and it shows this guy, it's in black and white, and it says, you're, uh, you're trying to have fun with your friend, and he just read Ecclesiastes, and it's this black and white footage of a guy at an amusement park. <laughs> it's so great. He's just riding through all the rides, and he's giving this deadpan expression, and like kind of going up the roller coaster and going down the roller coaster, and the tilt-a-whirl thing spinning around, whatever he does, he's just got this deadpan expression. And it's hilarious, but it's actually totally misunderstanding the book. Ecclesiastes isn't about bringing us low. It's about bringing us low to then give us permission to rejoice in the good things that God has given us. To to have permission to receive food and drink and work in all of their vaporous glory. To to receive it and to enjoy it precisely because they're vaporous. We're to rejoice. This is not an eat, drink, be merry, for you die kind of atheistic hedonism. No, no. This is a recognition that God gives these things to us, and we honor God by receiving them as gifts. We've said again and again that the preacher sees life not as gain, but as gift. Every element of our lives have been given to us by a good and gracious Father. Chapter 11, verse 9. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. Embrace those good things. God is generous, and faithfulness looks like enjoying the gifts that God gives us. As fleeting and temporal and as ephemeral as those things might be, receiving them. Now, Aaron helpfully distinguished what the preacher's saying here with a kind of normal, kind of cultural take on some of these ideas last week. Um, walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes that gives us the heebie-jeebies because we kind of hear that, you know, walk in the ways of your heart message and we realize how south that can go in a hurry. Uh, but the preacher understands that when he says, walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes knowing that, that all of these things will, God will bring into judgment. Right? God, God is, now we are accountable to God for the way in which we receive and enjoy those good gifts that he gives us. Life is gift, not gain. And what the preacher would have us to do is to sort of resolve Psalm 118. Does anybody know Psalm 118? This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it, doggone it. Here's the reality. The hevel wages a full-on, all-out assault on meaning. The monotony, the day-to-day grind, the morning after morning after morning can be a blitz to, to any kind of sense of fullness or coherence to life. The hevel reality of life takes our loved ones, those people we love so dearly, they are vapor and they will leave us one day. The hevel is random and things that don't make sense happen. The hevel confuses us. We see bad leaders doing bad things. We see Bad things happening to good people and good things happening to bad people. The race doesn't go to the swift or the battle to the strong. The hevel takes our hair and our eyesight and it breaks our bodies down. The hevel robs us of experiences. But friends, listen to what the preacher says. It can't touch our joy. As powerful and pervasive as it is, the hevel cannot touch joy. There's a kind of power and agency and freedom and joy that is unbelievably potent. A community group, our guys are reading through Mere Christianity, one of my favorite books, and C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, says this. Enemy-occupied territory, that's what the world is. But Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. How do we sabotage the hevel? How do we stick it to the man? How do we stick it to the hevel? What's our act of resistance? Rejoice. Rejoice. 
Receive the things that the Lord gives us and receive them as being from God himself. So our first word is rejoice. Our second word, Ecclesiastes 11.10. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity or vapor. Our second word is this, remove. Specifically, remove vexation. Again, Ecclesiastes is about killing illusions. It's about challenging our ambition. It's about acknowledging the seemingly chaotic nature of life. And there's a kind of freedom that the acknowledgement of all of these things actually gives us. The word vexation can mean something like frustration or anxiety. And he's saying that a hevel life need not be a life of vexation or frustration or anxiety. He's not calling us to a kind of blindness to the hevel, a kind of ostrich head in the sand ignorance to how broken everything is. It's not possible anyway. It's rather a refusal to be ruled by it. The kind of acceptance of the reality of things, which is a relief. Here we have an older, wiser brother saying, friends, I've been through this, I've been on the other end of this, and everything is vapor. Be freed by that acknowledgement. There's no more pretending like we're going to live forever under the sun. There's no need to put pressure on things under the sun. There's no need to have a a picture-perfect storybook life and picturesque Instagram feed. There's no need to enviously keep up with high school friends or neighbors. We can let go of all of that and receive what God gives us with joy. One of the the things that you hear all the time, old-timers, older brothers and sisters in the faith, they say, in the faith, rather, they say, one of the things I wish I would have done less as a young person is just worried less. I was speaking with Carol Leppard, our senior most member, about Ecclesiastes before we began the study. And one of the things he said was exactly that. I just wish I would have spent less time worrying. Bad things will happen to us, but so much fewer than we imagine. So remove vexation. Bad things happen, but never as many as we imagine them to be. Now, it's interesting to me, too, that he seems to give particular attention to the young in all three of these exhortations. Rejoice in your youth. He says, remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are like vapor. He's like, don't spend your youth worrying. Don't spend your youth uh, clamoring after things that won't last. And why is that? Why does he seem to have such a particular attention to the youth? We've we got a young church and the concrete is still wet for us, right? It's, it's worth us attending to this. I think it's because of this principle that the, the kind of habits and rhythms and kind of places you find yourself when you're young have a way of just sort of settling as time goes on. And he's an older man and he's looking back, you know, kind of framed like he's speaking to a son. And he's like, don't let the concrete settle on some of these bad habits. Like, re- rejoice and remove vexation. He says, put away pain from your body. It's almost like he's saying, your body is going to give you plenty of reasons to be vexed here in the future. So no need to be vexed now. He's saying, Let's learn to do this. Let's learn to do this while the concrete is still wet. He's not saying that the old can't learn this as well. Of course, a living dog is better than a dead lion, chapter 9. But there's a particular word the older preacher has for the young, that there is still lots of life left to be spent. Spend it well, he says. Don't be a fool. Now, I've already kind of mentioned that our church is a younger church. Uh, The most recent kind of I guess demographic evaluation we did was our average age was somewhere around 30 years old. And I wonder what it would look like for our church if we embrace this. We have a lot of life out in front of us and frankly a lot of illusions still out in front of us. I just wonder what it would look like if we, if we really heeded what the preacher said. That we were a people of deep, impenetrable 
joy. And a people who, who resisted vexation, who just refused to be anxious and been out of shape and outraged about the stuff that everybody else has been out of shape and outraged about. Who isn't vexed right now? What if we had a kind of resilience in and to the hevel and learned this lesson now in our youthfulness, a kind of joyful resilience? How different would that make us from our neighbors? This first word is rejoice. The second word is remove vexation. And then the third and final word, followed by this brilliant poem, begins in chapter 12, verse 1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. And the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders, he's probably talking about teeth, the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look through windows, the eyes are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut, the body shuts down. When the sound of the grinding is low and rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They're also afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. And then don't miss this, the preacher's final words in the book are the same as his opening words. Vanity of vanities. Vapor of vapors, says the preacher. All is vapor. His final word for us is remember your creator in the days of your youth. And he specifically says remember before and then goes on this incredibly, stunningly beautiful and dramatic poetic reflection on death, on aging. When the sun and the light are darkened, when the keepers of the house tremble, when the strong men are bent, the the grinders cease because they're few, when the windows are dimmed, He kind of uses this really uh, almost apocalyptic language to describe the end of life because, I mean, in a sense, it is the end of the world for each of us when we go into death, right? And he says, before that time comes, before our bodies shut down, before we enter into death, remember your creator. Of course, like we've said, we don't don't want to misunderstand what he's he's not saying about death. The preacher isn't saying that death is the end in the sense that there's no life after death. He's just illustrating, I think, a really important lesson for us. I I think he wants us to grapple very seriously, really and truly, with the reality of our death and the ticking clock, with the fact that we will not be young forever, for those of us who are still young. Our older brothers and sisters in the room heartily amen that. They see that. Specifically, what he wants us to do before the end, before all of that, he says, is to remember your creator. Remember your creator. Remember that all things come from him. Chapter 7, prosperity and adversity comes from God's hand. Remember the good gifts that he gives. There's so many good things about the world. Uh, You guys make fun of me for how much I talk about food, but have you had it? You know? We were talking about raising and discovering TCGS this morning. We we were were able to do a class with with 15 or so new folks interested in becoming a part of our body. And uh, Aaron's opening question was, what was your favorite restaurant? And I have not yet recovered from that, from the kind of angst it's created in me to go visit all these new places. Raising Cane's was mentioned. Pita House on Pleasantburg. The world is abundant and full and rich and beautiful. And it's not the universe in some vague, abstract way. It is the God and Father of the Lord Jesus who gives us these good gifts that are downstream from his own beauty and goodness. 
And he says, enjoy them and have your hearts and your minds directed back up to me. Remember that you're accountable to God. Follow your heart, but know that God will judge you for that. One day, you and I will stand before the Lord God. We will stand before him accountable for the life that we've chosen to live. What we did with the vaporous life that he gave us. We must also remember that our creator is beyond the hevel. That God is in total control and we can trust the one who is above the sun even when the hevel and absurdity and madness under the sun threaten to make us lose our minds. We can fear God. We can do what he calls us to do and be joyful. Rejoice. Remove vexation. Remember your creator. Now, how do we respond to this? Well, well thankfully... There's an epilogue tagged at the end of this book that tells us exactly how to respond to Ecclesiastes. It's kind of difficult to pinpoint exactly who the author of Ecclesiastes is because we do have these kind of bookends. At the beginning, we're told that we're we're fixing to hear from the preacher, and then at the end, there's a reflection on what the preacher's just said. So it's possible that there's some kind of editor who came in and compiled some of Solomon's sayings. Whatever it is, whatever it is, we we trust that it's from the Holy Spirit and from the Lord. And this is what the editor has to say to us in chapter uh, verse nine, chapter twelve. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. Anybody know what he's talking about? Proverbs? Blowing your mind, Bible facts, verse 10. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. He seems to strongly suggest that this is Solomon, that Solomon is the preacher. He sought to find good words with which to share with us. He recorded these words for us, for our, for our good. These delightful words. It's a, uh, uh, the, the proverb that talks about a word fitly spoken is like, a, like a, a delicious golden apple. But, verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. You're given by one shepherd. These words are about bursting bubbles. Ecclesiastes is about pricking us and goading us towards life change. They come from the mouth of God himself, the one shepherd. And so as a result, because these words come from God, verse 12, my son, be, be, uh, beware of anything beyond these words. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Every North Greenville student feels that right now at this point in the semester. Much study is a weariness of the flesh. He says, I mean, frankly, like, devote yourself to the good stuff. Devote yourself to things like Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. There's a lot of other books that we could devote ourselves to. But much studiness is a, study is a weariness of the flesh. But here's what the writer of the epilogue would have us to do in verse 13. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing whether good or evil. He says, you've heard the preacher's words. He says, you have sat at at a church that has devoted itself to walking through the book of Ecclesiastes and tried to be faithful with bringing to bear Ecclesiastes on our life situation. He says, you've read the words of the preacher. Now, fear God. Obey Ecclesiastes. For this this is the whole deal for you. The whole duty of man is that we fear God and obey him. And know this, God will hold us accountable for the life we live. Now, there's two questions for us, two really pressing questions. These are questions for reflection, going away from here. Two questions for us to ask in light of Ecclesiastes. First, do you trust God? Do you trust God? And secondly, what needs to change in light of our study 
of Ecclesiastes. What needs to change? How has this book challenged you and reoriented you? What new habits do you need to develop? What old habits do you need to drop? What illusions need to be burst? Illusions of permanence, illusions of omnipotence. The editor wants you and I to live differently in light of what we've just read and studied. What does that need to be for you? But I think the more pressing question is whether or not we trust the God who's beyond the heaven. Do you trust God? Like literally. Not in the viral Facebook post, share if you trust God kind of way, but literally, do you trust God? Do you trust him with the particulars of where you're at right now? There's lots of things that we do not, cannot, probably will not ever understand about our lives. Do you trust God with that information? Do you trust the God who is behind the hevel, who isn't confined under the sun like we are? Do you trust, do you believe believe that he sees and that he cares? Do you believe that he's there? Do you have a trust in God that enables you to rejoice? Are you confident in his love for you and his ability to sustain you? Are you confident in his ability to deliver on his promise of good through all circumstances? Are you confident in his ability to deliver a happy ending that will outweigh whatever hevel-induced affliction we endure in the present? Do you trust God? Do you have a trust that enables you to remove vexation? It's a a deep relinquishing of control. It's, It's letting go. It's relinquishing our illusions of control, knowing that all things are in the hands of a good, strong, kind father. Do you trust God? There's a commentator named Bruce Waltke who summarizes the book in this way. This is great. He says, to be sure, work on an assembly line seems without meaning. It's kind of hitting on the, what the preachers talked about, the repetitive nature of life just feels burdensome and meaningless. Work on an assembly line seems without meaning, and even creative work that seems meaningful turns out to be meaningless in death. But thank God if he has given you the grace to be thankful for a paycheck. Thank God you can clank your fork on a china plate and eat a steak. Life is absurd, as the existentialist knows too well. But thank God you can put a disc on your CD player and hear Beethoven. The preacher faces the mortal's despairing condition with justified cynicism and with unflinching honesty, but he also confronts life's grimness with a heartfelt faith in God. His aging body reminds him that life is absurd, but he is thankful to God that his heart knows his creator is wise just and good. If all we had to work with was the hevel, to sort it out on our end, we would wonder, is life meaningless? I mean, is there any kind of sense to all of this? Is it all empty? Are we, are we on a space rock that is careening through space meaninglessly? But God has made his wisdom, justice, goodness, and trustworthiness really clear to us. How? The person of Jesus of Nazareth. God pierced the vapor with his own son, and he showed himself to be a friend of sinners, a friend of sufferers, a friend of people who are afflicted with hevel. He is a merciful and great high priest who comes to die in our stead, who's welcomed by shouts of Hosanna this Palm Sunday, only to be murdered and rejected days later. But in Jesus, we see the Father's heart. We see his commitment to us. We see his transcendence beyond the hevel, his ability to overcome it, and the life death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And so we look at Jesus, and we look at the heaven, and we trust that God is up to something through it, and we, and we stake everything on that. 
and we give ourselves wholly to that God, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, trusting our very eternity with him. It's our hope that in studying the book of Ecclesiastes that we would, we would walk away with, with, a, with a more realistic take on just the, the, the hevel reality of life. That as a young church, we'd have our bubbles burst, that we'd be goaded by uh, the, the firmly fixed nails by the one shepherd. And we'd be goaded to see that God is big and strong and he loves us and he sends Jesus for us. These next few moments, would you just sit and reflect on the things that have been said? You can work through those reflection questions kind of there in your seat. And then after a couple of moments, Nick and the band are going to lead us through singing and celebrating God's holiness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you because you came to us. And we pray that we would feel the gravity of what your scripture has to say to us. But we pray we would be comforted in knowing that in you we see the Father's very heart. And that just as you told Philip, you, you see me, you see the Father. There's, there's, there's no God behind the back of, of you, Jesus. You are God and in you we see God as he is. pray that in the face of the hevel and the vaporousness of life and the, the reality of death and the uncertainty of the next moment, we pray that we would be a people of rejoicing, a people that have a kind of ability to, to remove vexation from, from our confidence in you, and the people who remember you, the people who, who are Godward in all that we do. And I pray that for those of us who are struggling, who are struggling to, to believe that there is anything beyond the vapor, anything on the other side of the mist, I pray that they would look to Jesus and, and see in Jesus with clarity who you are, God. And I pray that our church be a people who are about making Jesus known. I pray you would work in our hearts that your spirit would prompt us to action, to change, to greater trust. We pray all these things in Christ's name.